Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we follow the Doctor and Joe as they're caught up in a burgeoning war in frontier and space. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and give you our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E, T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. Now, though, it has been a while, so we'll get back into it at a nice leisurely pace by recapping the story. Off you go, then. I will. Episode 1. In deep space, the captain and first mate of an Earth cargo ship are discussing the potential conflict arising from tensions between Earth and the planet Draconia. They go into hyperspace, but are forced to drop out of it when they nearly collide with the TARDIS which materialises within the hold of the ship. The Doctor and Joe exit the TARDIS, and Joe again questions the extent of the Doctor's control over it. He goes to check the readings to see where they are, so he can plot a course back to their own time, and Joe looks around the hold. She looks out through one of the portholes and sees another ship outside, which suddenly seems to change shape. She calls out to the Doctor, who says that they're somewhere within the 26th century. Joe asks him if he heard a noise, and he said he heard a faint sound, but he says that they need to speak to the crew to learn the exact date. Just as they are about to leave, Joe points out that the ship seems to be coming straight at them. This is noticed by the crew, who messages the ship to see if they need help. The strange sound that Joe heard fills the air again, and they are shocked when the ship suddenly changes shape to resemble a draconian battlecruiser. The captain tells the first mate to break out the small arms whilst he sends a distress signal to Earth. In the hold, the doctor doesn't seem to be too alarmed and tells Joe that the ship is most likely coming along to dock with the one that they are on. He then leaves to find a member of the crew and encounters the first mate taking a pair of blaster pistols out of the weapons locker. The doctor goes to greet him, but the first mate's perception is changed by the sound and he sees the doctor as a draconian, who looked like scaled humanoids. Joe arrives and she too is affected by the sound and she sees the first mate as a drashic. They are then brought at gunpoint to the command deck, where the captain is looking at the view screen, which shows the draconian commander demanding their surrender or they'll blow up the ship. The captain responds that if they attack, then they will be risking the lives of the pr- their prisoners, and he orders the first mate to take them to the brig, whilst he again radios for help. On Earth, a Draconian prince is meeting with the president of Earth, who denies that any of Earth's battlecruisers have attacked Draconian cargo ships. The prince says that the crews identify the ships as being from Earth, and reminds the president of his people's abhorrence for deceit. The president says that the Draconians have also attacked Earth ships, and shows him the messages from the cargo ship currently under attack. The prince then gets into an argument with General Williams, the commander of Earth's military forces, over the retaliatory nature of the attacks, but they are interrupted by the president, who tells Williams to oversee the rescue force being sent to the cargo ship. After he leaves, the prince states that he doesn't like Williams due to his previous actions against the Draconians in prior conflicts. The president begs the prince to take a message to his father, the emperor, to stop the attacks so they can renew their peace between the two planets. The prince ignores her pleas and warns her to stop the attacks from Earth or else war will start again, a war he promises that Draconia will win. Later, after he has left, the president is stunned when a news report reveals the attack on the cargo ship. The report also releases a statement from the leader of the party in opposition to the president, calling for the government to stand up to the Draconians. Williams returns and the president asks how the news got out and he says that the media picked up the distress call as well. The president asks when a rescue party will arrive at the cargo ship, and William angrily replies that it will be soon, but it will be too late by then. Another news bulletin announces a second draconian attack on a cargo ship, and William reads out a report that there has been anti-draconian riots in several cities, including a draconian consulate being burnt to the ground, and effigies of the president being burnt as well. 
They are then informed that the rescue ship is pulling alongside the cargo ship. In the brig of the cargo ship, Joe asks what is going on, and the Doctor realizes that they have arrived during the rise of Earth's galactic empire and its conflict with the Draconian Empire. He says that both Joe and the crew were affected by some ultrasonic hypnotic frequency that affected their perception. Joe then says that before they can do anything else, they need to find a way to escape the brig. Meanwhile, the captain and the first mate take up positions at the airlock and watches a flame from a cutting torch begins to slice through the hatchway. Unbeknownst to them, it is a pair of Ogrons operating the cutting torch. The first mate rushes to the brig to collect the Doctor and Joe in order to use them as human shields. He arrives just as the Doctor finishes using his screwdriver after reversing the polarity to act as a magnet to op- opens the door. He leads them at gunpoint to the airlock and they watch as the Ogrons break in. The Doctor throws the captain into them and tells Joe to run for the nearby TARDIS. However, the Doctor gets shot in the back as he follows her and Joe returns to his body as an Ogron stands over her. Later, the Doctor wakes up when he hears Joe calling for him. He finds her locked in the brig again and she informs him that the Ogrons took the entire cargo as well as the TARDIS. The Doctor wonders what the Ogrons are up to and Joe says that they could be working for the Daleks. The Doctor seems sceptical as Ogrons are mercenaries and could be working for anyone. They then go looking for the crew and find them unconscious near the completely repaired airlock. Suddenly, a communication comes in from the rescue ship and the Doctor goes to the command deck to respond to them. He tells the commander of the rescue ship about the stolen cargo and the condition of the crew. The rescue party comes on board and demands to know who the Doctor and Joe are and the revived crew say that they were helping the Draconians and called them traitors. Episode 2 Joe denies the accusations, but the commander of the rescue ship orders him to be taken to the rig of the cargo ship. The rescue ship then detaches from the cargo ship so that both ships can return to Earth. In the brig, Joe tries to come up with a plan to escape to force the crew to take them back to Earth, but the doctor gently reminds her that they are being taken there anyway. Joe asks why the crew can't seem to remember the Ogrons, and the doctor says that their memories of seeing them have been erased, leaving them with their memories up to the point where their first encounter of the doctor and Joe. He says their only chance is to get someone in authority to listen to them once they reach Earth. Joe seems overwhelmed with the fact that they need to find out who was behind the Orgon's attacks and for what reason and where they also took the TARDIS, having taken it along with the rest of the cargo. The President and General Williams are informed of the impending return of the ships and Williams says he will go to meet them. The President reminds him to report his findings to her immediately after he has interrogated the Doctor and Joe. Later, he returns to the President and informs her that they are draconian spies gathering information on Earth's forces for the impending war. The President has them brought to the building so that they can be presented to the Draconian Prince later. They are brought into a holding cell where the captain of the rescue ship advises them to be forthcoming with their information rather than have it extracted by force via a mind probe. The Doctor puts a worried Joe at ease by recounting a previous adventure that he was subjected to several mind probes but managed to destroy them due to the improbability of the stories he told them. In the President's office, the Draconian delegation listens to the testimony of the crew of the cargo ship. Again, they deny any attacks made by draconian vessels, but Williams informs them of the capture of the Doctor and Joe. The President has them brought in, and the Doctor denies having any involvement with the draconians. He insists that a third party is pushing Earth and Draconia into war, but Williams orders him and Joe to be taken away. The draconian delegation leave in anger, saying that they will report what has happened to the Emperor. Williams vows to the President that he will get the truth from the Doctor and Joe before long. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Joe are escorted back to their cell, and the Doctor says that they need to get out so they can try and avert the war that is about to start. He tries using his sonic screwdriver to get them out of the cell, but it sets off an alarm and they resign themselves to their captivity for the time being. At the Draconian Embassy, the Prince and his aide discuss the accusations. 
The aide suggests that there may be a plan being acted out on the Emperor's command without the Prince's knowledge for the sake of deniability. The Prince, however, says the Emperor would not do anything so dishonourable. The aide then suggests that they organise for the Doctor and Joe to escape so that they may be brought to the Embassy where they will be safe due to its diplomatic immunity. The aide calls the President and requests that she bring the prisoners back to her office so they can interrogate them to show that they are not agents of Draconia. The President agrees and orders for them to be brought to her. As they are being escorted, the escort party is ambushed by a squad of Draconians and in the confusion, the Doctor gets separated from Joe and he is captured by the Draconians. Joe is recaptured by the guards and she tells them about the abduction of the Doctor. In the President's office, Williams demands that the Draconian embassy be banished from Earth. The President refuses though, saying that she wants to keep diplomatic relations open between the two factions and orders him to ensure that no word gets out about the abduction. She then has Joe brought to her and she and Williams demand that she answer their questions. Joe insists that they are not working for the Draconians and that the Doctor desperately wants to stop both sides from waging war. William says that she would have to be subjected to the mind probe and Joe defiantly says that it won't make a difference. Meanwhile, the Doctor gives out to the Draconian Prince and his aide, saying that their actions have only made them look more suspicious. The Doctor tells them about the Ogrons, but the Draconians believe that they are acting under their orders from Williams. They order the Doctor to reveal what he knows, threatening to use their own mind probes on him. The aide orders him to be taken away, but the Doctor throws the guards into them and flees from the embassy only to be captured by a squad of Earth guards. He is then taken back to the cell where he tells Joe what happened, but she suddenly informs him that she can hear the same sound as she heard on the cargo ship. Outside, a squad of Ogrons attacks the building, but the Earth guards perceive them as Draconians. The Ogrons then break into the prison and force the Doctor and Joe to be followed them at gunpoint. Episode 3 the Doctor and Joe are led out of the prison, but the Orgons leading them are killed, allowing them to make a run for it. However, they are soon recaptured as the rest of the Orgons are beaten back by the Earth's guards. Meanwhile, Williams reports the attack to the President, who is reviewing footage of more anti-Draconian riots throughout the planet. Williams insists that they launch a preemptive strike against Draconia, lest she be removed from her power for hesitating too long. The President momentarily accuses him of being one of the voices calling for her removal, but he reminds her of their friendship and she apologises. He informs her that senior military officials, as well as the opposition party, will take matters into their own hands unless she acts quickly. She agrees to cut off all diplomatic relations with Draconia and remove the Draconian delegates from the planet, but will not launch a military attack without definitive proof. William says that they will need to use the mind probe, and she reluctantly sanctions its use, but only on the Doctor. Much to his annoyance, the machine reveals that the Doctor is telling the truth, and he orders the machine's power output to be increased, but it overloads when it cannot break the Doctor's mind. He is returned to his cell and he tells Joe that he is alright and suggests that they might have been better off letting the Orgrons kidnap them as it would have led them back to the TARDIS. They resign themselves to waiting for another kidnapping attempt but a guard enters and takes the Doctor to meet the President. At the President's office, she once again begs the Doctor to tell the truth and he tiredly insists that he has. She informs him that he will be sent to a penal colony on the moon without trial. She says that Joe will be kept on Earth in the hope that without the Doctor around she may tell them what they want to know. The Doctor arrives at the penal colony, but with a group of other political prisoners. He is informed by one of the other prisoners that those sent to the moon are sent there for life. The governor of the colony then arrives to inspect them and lays down the rules to them. He orders the Doctor to be given a prison uniform and leaves the rest of the orientation to his chief guard, Cross. After the orientation is finished, they are informed by an older prisoner that Cross is actually a trustee and therefore a prisoner himself. The prisoner who came with the Doctor, whose name is Patel, recognises the older prisoner as Professor Dale, a fellow member of the Peace Party. Dale then takes the Doctor to get a prison uniform. 
He is taken to the rec room where he inquires about the previous escape attempts and asks Dale to give him as much information about the prison layout as he can. Patel eavesdrops on them as he starts to grow suspicious of the Doctor. He voices these suspicions to the Doctor along with Dale, who think he's a government plant. He tells them about the outside influence pushing the two sides closer to war. Back on Earth, the President and Williams are reviewing a pair of criminal rap sheets apparently belonging to the Doctor and Joe, which include crimes such as fraud, robbery and assault. The crimes all originated from the planet Sirius IV, whose delegate has arrived to take them into custody. The President summons the delegate in, but she is unaware that it is actually the Master. The Master asks them to be turned over to him in accordance with Sirius IV's dominion status within Earth's empire. Williams refuses to let them go, but the President agrees, wishing to keep Sirius IV on their side in the event of war with Draconia. The Master is then taken to the prison, where he speaks to Joe alone. Joe realises that he was the one who sent the Ogrons, but he refuses to elaborate on his motives unless she agrees to go with him. With no other choice, Joe agrees to go with him in order to rescue the Doctor. On the moon, Dale says he believes the Doctor's story, as it is not outside the realm of possibility that someone would seek to take advantage of the animosity between Earth and Draconia. Suddenly, Cross arrives and takes him aside for a random search. However, Cross reveals that he successfully organised an escape that Dale had previously requested. Dale thanks him and promises to grant the pardon he uses as an incentive once he and the peace party take over. Dale comes back, but the Doctor sees through the ruse and the Dale reveals the rescue plan. He says that he and one other person will be sent for airlock maintenance and once there, they will use a pair of spacesuits to walk across the moon's surface to meet the rescue ship. He says he wants the Doctor to go with him so they can use their contacts in the media to spread the Doctor's story. They arrive at the airlock and start to put on the spacesuits. The Doctor then notices that the air canisters for the suits are empty and he discovers that the door is locked as Cross has locked them in and starts to pump air out of the airlock. Episode 4 The Doctor takes one of the canisters and starts to bang it on the door in hopes that someone will notice them. Dale falls to the ground, struggling to breathe, and the Doctor goes to assist him. Suddenly, air starts to fill the room again and the door opens, revealing the Master to be their saviour. He takes him to the Governor's office, where Cross is also in attendance, and the Doctor reveals the escape plan and Cross's part in it. Cross denies it, as well as the sabotage of the suits. The Governor orders them to be placed in solitary confinement for a year, but the Master tries to intervene unsuccessfully. Once they are alone, the Master accuses the Governor of being the Master behind the fake rescue in order to eliminate Dale. He says that he won't reveal his part in the plan if the Doctor is given over to him and the Governor agrees. When they go to his cell, the Doctor initially refuses to go and tries to out the Master, but the Master reveals that he has Joe with him, and so the Doctor reluctantly agrees. He is then reunited with Joe in a prison ship that the Master has commandeered. The Master says that he has been employed by an outside party to bring the Doctor to them on the Orgron home planet. After he leaves, the Doctor immediately works up an escape plan with Joe so they can get out before the automated security cameras activate after the ship takes off. After the ship leaves orbit, the Master observes the Doctor as he and Joe sit with their backs to the bars of the cell, where the Doctor regales her with his trial after the war games and his forced change of appearance. Unbeknownst to the Master, the Doctor is actually using a piece of string file to cut through the bars as he talks. He then sneaks out as Joe blocks the camera with her body and can continues talking allowing him to slip on a nearby spacesuit he then goes outside the ship to sneak back into the, through the secondary airlock the master who has tuned out joe's non-stop speaking by engrossing himself in reading war of the worlds by hg wells is suddenly forced to make a course correction to avoid collision with an asteroid he tells his prisoners to brace themselves and which causes joe to worry as the doctor has no way of knowing what's about to happen outside the doctor is shaken loose from the ship and sent drifting into space 
When the ship rights itself again, he detaches the cable from his oxygen canisters to push himself back towards the ship. The master asks if they are okay and grows suspicious when the doctor doesn't answer. Joe says that he is asleep and the master then takes a blaster with him to go inspect the cell, asking Joe where he is. The doctor gets back into the ship and goes to the flight deck where he hears Joe explaining what happened during the course correction. The master, cautious that the doctor may have gotten back onto the ship, puts Joe into the airlock and then calls out for the doctor to surrender. The doctor suddenly appears and uses a length of cable to whip the blaster out of the master's hand. The master then rushes to try and blast Joe out of the airlock and the doctor rushes to intercept him. A brief struggle ensues, but the master gets the better of him and forces the doctor to retrieve his blaster, threatening to kill Joe if he doesn't. Suddenly, the ship shakes as another ship docks with it, and the two Time Lords are stunned to see a squad of Draconians emerge from the airlock with Joe. The master tries to explain his purpose to them, but the Draconians do not listen, saying that a state of emergency has been declared, and any humans in Draconian territory are to be executed. The doctor begs to be taken to the Emperor, saying that he has vital information, and the leader of the Draconians orders them to be put back in the cell so they can be taken to Draconia. In their cell, the doctor tells Joe that he once helped the Draconians through a difficult period, and so they may be willing to listen. Joe tells the master that he will be outed as an imposter, but he ignores her, deciding to go for a rest due to the length of the upcoming journey. However, he surreptitiously activates a homing beacon, which is picked up by an Ogron ship. Episode 5 the ship lands on Draconia, and the Master wakes up in very chipper form. They are then taken to the Emperor's throne room, where the Prince urges him to declare war on Earth. Like the President, the Emperor is reluctant to engage in a war that could devastate the Draconian Empire. Much like on Earth, the Prince says that the nobles of the court are also insisting that action be taken, or he might find himself deposed. The Emperor says that he will take no action until he questions the prisoners. The Doctor approaches and addresses the Emperor in the manner of a court noble, and when asked how he knows their customs, he mentions his previous trip to the planet. The Emperor confirms the story of the Doctor's aid to the planet, but he says that it was over 500 years ago, and is sceptical that the Doctor could live that long. He says that they are still guilty of trespassing into Draconian space, and the Doctor reveals that the Master is responsible for the attacks on both Earth and Draconian ships in an effort to cause war. The Master denies these claims, saying the Doctor is a prisoner seeking to escape justice, but the Emperor seems to believe the Doctor. The prince tries to return the conversation to an attack on Earth, but he is interrupted by a messenger who says that a spaceship has arrived from Earth with a special envoy from the president. The master then begins to congratulate the emperor for his pursuit of peace, but as he is talking, Joe hears the strange sound again and informs the doctor. He tries to warn the emperor to impound the ship, but it is too late as a squad of Ogrons attack the throne room. A fight breaks up between them and the Draconians, and the doctor rushes to help protect the emperor and knocks out an Ogron. Having failed to recapture his prisoners, the Master calls off the attack and retreats with the Ogrons back to the ship. After they go, the Doctor tries to get the Emperor to see past the illusion, but he only sees an Earth guard. The Doctor asks Joe if the sound is still there, and she says it is fading. The Doctor then asks the Emperor to look again, and this time he sees an Ogron. On their ship, the Master berates the Ogrons for their failure, and says they now need to make sure the Doctor doesn't get back to Earth with the evidence of the deceit. Back in the throne room, they fail to get any information from the Ogron, and the Doctor says a mind probe won't work either due to the Ogron's limited intelligence. The Emperor says that they should contact Earth with their information, but the Doctor says that they won't believe them without proof, as they might think it to be a trap. The Prince says that both Empires are on the verge of war, and any ships entering the other's domains could start the conflict. Joe, after being allowed to speak by the Emperor, much to the Prince's chagrin due to their customs, suggests using the Master's abandoned ship to go back as it belongs to the Earth colony. The Emperor agrees and sends the Prince with them as an envoy. 
Later, as they are on a route back to Earth, Joe feeds the Ogron and warns the Draconian Guard to be wary of him. She goes back to the flight deck where the Prince and the Doctor notice a ship following them, which is actually the Ogron ship. The Master says that they need to try and recapture them, but they must be prepared to kill them if necessary, lamenting that he cannot do it in a more personal fashion rather than a long-range attack. The Doctor hails them and the Master impersonates an Earth officer, saying that their ship has been reported as stolen and he orders them to let them dock with them. The Doctor agrees to slow down, but only so he can identify the ship. As the ships draw closer, the Master orders the Ogrons to fire on the Doctor's ship. The Doctor attempts to take evasive action as the ship is bombarded with missiles. The Prince demands that they return fire, but the Doctor says that they don't have any armaments. Suddenly the Ogron from the cell appears, having broken down the door and killed the guard. The Doctor wrestles with him and inadvertently hits the speed controls, causing the ship to slow down and allowing the Master ship to get closer to them. The Doctor and the Prince manage to subdue the Ogron, and Joe goes back to check on the guard. She sees the Ogrons enter the airlock and tries to stop them, but to no avail. The Doctor and the Prince arm themselves and get into a firefight with the Ogrons. However, they are recalled when an Earth battlecruiser approaches, and they take Joe with them. The battlecruiser hails them, and the Doctor begs them to stop the Ogron ship from leaving, but the Captain insists that they allow them to board, as their ship was reported stolen. On the Ogron ship... Joe says that the Master's plan has failed, but he shows her the rescued Orgard prisoner and tells her that no one will listen to the Prince due to the current hostility towards Draconia. His words prove to be true when at her office the President tells the Doctor and the Prince that she cannot accept their story without proof. William says that he will not allow them to take any vehicle to go to the Orgard planet, overruling the President using military jurisdiction. The Prince says that Williams won't help them because of his hatred for Draconia, claiming that Williams destroyed a diplomatic ship from Draconia which caused the previous war. It is revealed in their argument that both ships were damaged in a neutron storm as they travelled to the meeting point, with both of their communications arrays being destroyed. Williams thought that he had been led into a trap, as the Draconian envoy travelled in a battlecruiser, but the prince reveals it was unarmed and was a ceremonial vehicle befitting the stature of the nobleman who travelled in it. Williams apologises for his actions and offers to lead the expedition to the Ogron home planet. Meanwhile, the Master ship arrives at the Ogron planet and the Master takes Joe to his temporary lair where he also has the Doctor's TARDIS. He then attempts to hypnotise her to use her as part of a trap for the Doctor, but Joe resists by repeating nursery rhymes to block off his attempts. He then starts to use the device that has been used to alter the perceptions of the humans and the Draconians and then Joe starts to panic as it starts to affect her. Episode 6 Joe does her best to combat the illusions cast by the machine, which includes the Drashig, a Solonian mutant and a sea devil, and eventually she is able to block it out, which the Master begrudgingly congratulates her on. He then has her taken away as reports come in of another raid on a pair of Earth ships, resulting in the destruction of one of them. Joe is placed in a makeshift cell in a cave and given some food. Once the guard leaves, she uses the spoon that she was given to dig into the soft cell of the cave near the bars of the cell. The news of the attack reaches Earth, and the leader of the opposition party uses it to whip the citizens of Earth into a frenzy. The footage of the rally is being watched by the Doctor, the Prince and the President in her office. The President laments the fact that they do not have proof as Williams arrives and informs them that the scout ship is ready to go to the Orgon planet. En route, they are attacked by a draconian battlecruiser. The Prince offers to try and speak to them, but the Doctor says there is no time and Williams orders the ship to go into hyperdrive to avoid destruction. However, one of the drives was damaged and the pilot says they need to repair it before they can get back on course. The Doctor volunteers to go out and fix it as the ship still needs to be manually piloted. Another Draconian ship approaches and Williams alerts the Doctor who rushes to finish the repairs. 
He manages to get it done and get back inside just as the Draconians attack, and William orders the ship to go back into hyperdrive. They eventually reach the planet, but the pilot warns them that going further into the atmosphere might undo the Doctor's repairs, but he says that they need to risk it. On the Orgon planet, Joe manages to escape her cell and makes her way through the corridors, avoiding patrolling Orgrons until she gets back to the Master's room. She steals the perception machine and then uses the radio to send a message on a broad frequency informing any ship within range of the Master's plan and urges them to report back to the respective empires. The message is picked up by William's ship and they begin an approach to the location it's coming from. The Master then arrives and reveals that Joe fell for his trick. He allowed her to escape knowing that she would try to get a message out informing her that the radio is only a short range transmitter and can be only picked up by an orbiting ship. He tells her that the Doctor has arrived and activates a homing signal to trick him into believing that Joe is guiding them in. At that moment, the repairs in the drive fail and the ship is forced to land away from the Master's base, forcing him to send an Orgon patrol out to look for them. The Doctor leads the Prince and Williams and his men towards the base, unaware that they are being observed by the Orgrons. They are suddenly ambushed by Orgrons and a firefight ensues. Suddenly, the Orgrons flee as a large worm-like creature appears on a nearby ridge and the Doctor says they can use the confusion to continue. The Orgrons rush back to the base and are berated for their cowardice by the Master, who says that they will be punished by their own Masters who are now approaching the planet. The arrival of their ship is witnessed by the Doctor and the others who go to investigate it. As they make their way towards it, the Doctor feels that they are being watched, and his feelings are confirmed by the arrival of the Master and a group of Daleks. Williams orders his men to open fire, but several of them are killed before the Doctor tells them to stop. They are then all taken back to the base. In the base, the Master asks for the Doctor's life to be spared, but only so he can see the destruction of Earth in the war. The Daleks agree and leave him in the Master's custody, whilst they go off to prepare their own forces to take over after the war ends. The Doctor, Williams and the Prince are then taken to the cells, where they are reunited with Joe. Joe gives the Doctor the perception machine in the hopes that he can use it to escape, and he begins to tinker with it. He then tells Williams and the Prince to get back to their own worlds to convince the governments of the truth. The Doctor then uses the device to convince an Ogron that he is a Dalek, who flees in terror after he opens the cell doors. Meanwhile, the Master asks to be given Earth to rule over after the Doctor is killed. The Daleks agree, and once they are gone, the Master mocks their gullibility as he intends to rule the universe himself. The Guard rushes in and reveals what happened, and the Master tells him to go get the rest of the Guards. Meanwhile, the Doctor and the others are making their way through the corridors, and Joe points out a mural on the wall that she saw an Ogron worshipping earlier on. The mural looks like the creature that the Ogrons fled from, and the Doctor thinks they can be used against the Ogrons. They get to the Master's office and show Williams and the Prince how to escape. However, once they are gone, the Master emerges with the Ogrons and aims a blaster at the Doctor. The Doctor uses the perception machine again, and the Ogrons flee. The Master shoots the Doctor before joining the Ogrons in their escape, and Joe helps the wounded Doctor into the TARDIS. He staggers to the console and sets the ship into flight before sending a telepathic message to the Time Lords. End of the story. So, now that we have left you in amazing suspense, (laughs) we're going to go over to the trivia spot and see what Trish has got for us this week. So, fire away cool so the air date for frontier in space is the 24th of february to the 31st of march 1973 writer of this story is malcolm hulk this is the seventh of eight stories written by malcolm his previous stories were the faceless ones with Derek ellis the war games with terence dicks 
Doctor Who and the Silurians. He had uncredited work on the Ambassadors of Death. He did Colony in Space and the Sea Devils. He also wrote the novelization for the story, which is actually called Doctor Who and the Space War, which is an interesting title change and a bit more on the nose. Yeah, just a tad. We'll see Malcolm's work again in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. The director for this story is Paul Bernard. This is the third and final story directed by Paul. He previously directed Day of the Daleks and The Time Monster. This story had the working title of Frontiers in Space, with an, with an S, rather than Singular Frontier. Which I kind of get the feeling that like the frontier in space is kind of like the neutral zone. Yeah, there there is an awful lot of similarities here between... <laughs> like. I, I had it I have it in my overall, but I might as well just say it now. This episode reminds me so much of the last two episodes of the first season of The Next Generation. Conspiracy oh, yeah. at the neutral zone. Mm. Like huge vibes off <laughs> off it, you know? Yeah. You hear like frontier and you think like you know, Wild West. Yeah. Do you know? You don't think then you see frontier in space and then you do Space the final frontier. But but I I do think they're using frontier though as a sort of neutral zone term. Hugely. Because like rather than an exploration go further type thing. Yeah, no, because especially with the fact that that you're told very early on that there was a previous war between these two people and they are currently in some sort of a truce. Yes. The original outline actually had the Cybermen working with the master. And they were swapped out for the Ogrons. This is before the scripting started, but the original idea was to have him pair up with the Cybermen, which actually would have given John Pertwee a Cyberman story during his run, which we've said before he didn't have. So instead, they were swapped out for the Ogrons to lead, I presume, more naturally into next week. Yeah, but that being said, what we have here is actually a very good thing for the Master for the fucking first time, is the one using other people yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's true um i mentioned next week so this story does end in a cliffhanger kind of similar to the cliffhangers we would have seen back in hartnell's time mm-hmm. the rescue leading directly into the romans with the tardis falling off the side of the cliff that type of thing yeah this is the first time we've seen this direct carry through in a long long time and actually originally the two stories were kind of meant to be one large 12 part story that's that's really evident by the fact like you bring the daleks into the very last episode for like a cup of coffee and they did that that's it like they're only there so clearly this was meant to be part of something much bigger mm. there is another reason why the daleks were in the last episode in the way that they were right the ogron eater otherwise known as the big orange blob monster that appears on screen for a grand total of about three seconds in its actual physical form and then you have the painting on the wall which actually looks the painting looks fucking scary yeah the and actual the mo- blob monster looks ridiculous no uh the the blob monster actually kind of looks like the i don't think you've seen it but it looks like the brain bug from starship troopers i have seen it but when i was like 12 yeah so i don't remember basically originally the ogron eater as we call it so the blob monster was meant to be the end of the episode as in it was meant to come back the ogrons were obviously meant to see it because they were afraid of it and whatever barry didn't like the way it turned out um apparently it was 
really, really bad. And the only way to correct it was to do pickups during the filming of the next story, Planet of the Daleks, which was directed by David Maloney. So David Maloney actually directed a lot of the pickup shots for this story, even though um, Paul Bernard still has full credit. Um, David Maloney did do a lot in it. In terms of pacing, there was a lot that was sort of redone, as we said, but they also cut out a bit. So episode three, the bit after the reprise. Mm -hmm. So the president's assistant, who is Sheila, who never gets named in the episode as we saw it, was actually meant to go on and talk about the tensions between Earth and Draconia. She was the one who revealed that Williams had destroyed a Draconian battlecruiser in his youth not realizing it had been unarmed. So mm. there's like this whole thing yeah. <laughs> that they were meant to be talking about while giving the president a massage, which is like the best thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> all, all that's missing is someone playing a lute in the background. <laughs> um, but it was cut for timing. Um, though apparently the lady who played Sheila still got, you know, uh, credit, even though she said nothing. <laughs> she literally said <laughs> not a single word. Uh, her entire thing was cut. <laughs> because of timing so obviously the doctor uses the hypno sound stupid name but whatever um, in episode 6 to make him appear like a Dalek when the Ogrons are looking at him hmm. the voice of that Dalek is Dalek voice actor Michael Wisher hmm. interestingly the president of Earth we never get told her name no she's just the president she's just the president her name is Dora. <laughs> she was given a name in the 2016 audio story, The Transcendence of Ephros. So yeah, her name is Dora. Oh, it's nice to see that Dora makes its way into the far future. <laughs> yep. Um, it was actually Terence's idea, Terence Dix's idea, to have the president be female. And mm. Malcolm Hulk kind of wanted to add the fact that she wasn't the first woman to hold that position. Yeah, you know, it's kind of um, cool. I like, I like that... Because I think what is it around the seventies? You actually start seeing countries have female heads of state. Yeah, yeah, and obviously, like the UK, you're you're gonna have Thatcher at some point. You know what I mean? But um, <laughs> this one's nice. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I like as well is that we do get to see a bit more diversity. So, like the president of Earth, she has an accent. She isn't British. Hmm. we get to see a black again i don't think british news presenter do you know the member of the peace party that was taken up to the moon is of indian or pakistani extraction which i thought was quite cool that we get to see again a bit more diversity with that newscaster i i have to look it up but i'm fairly sure he's in blink really I'm fairly sure that he plays uh, the old fucking spoilers, the older version. Oh, of the, the guy of the cop. I'm pretty sure. Let me just double check. Okay, well, I keep talking. You look that up. Yeah. The reason why the hypno sound was a thing in the first place is because originally the Ogrons were going to wear like physical masks to make them look like the Draconians, and they decided to scrap that and use the hypno sound instead. John Pertwee has said that the Draconians were his favourite monster because of how expressive they were. They're they're done really, really well. It reminds me of the work done on Planet of the Apes. Like, yeah. just how that good they are. 
Uh, yes, his name is Lewis Mahoney. He was in Frontier in Space. He's in one of your favorites, Planet of Evil. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he passed away. Oh, he is, yeah. Unfortunately, he passed away last year. Oh, boo. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. So, yeah, Draconians, John Pertwee loved them because you could actually act with them. Yeah, like, oh, they, uh, they have a very they have a very eastern flair to them like in terms mm. of like their like their mannerisms their style of dress i suppose the fact that they're dragons or they're kind of mm. things like that as well but the the prosthetics for them are incredible yeah particularly consider that in this story we also have the ogrons who i think these ogrons are better than the ogrons we've seen in the past they do look better but like john Pertwee gave the example of he hated acting with ogrons because there's very little they can do with their faces. Whereas with the Draconians, it was very well done. And actually, an interesting thing was, like, um, again, on the Blu-ray set, the Behind the Sofa special, um, they were saying how, like, the Draconians never come back. This is it. Such a waste. It's, it's well, I was I was going to say, like, it was, like, like the Sea Devils and the Sonorians, but obviously they come back. They come back. Yeah, but, like, particularly with... Those are like you, they put so much time and effort into so many prosthetics. Mm-hmm. It's not like you just have. It's not like Daleks where you have three. Yeah, no, just what like at least half a dozen. Yeah, if yeah. not more, and all the prosthetics and all the costuming for one. Well, for six episodes, but for one story, it's crazy. Actually, they remind me of dragon like or lizard like versions of uh, Jedi Master Kiadi Mundi from. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I get it. Yeah. Come here, because you said you watched on the Blu ray and I watched it on an older version. Mm. Was the intro for like episode, was it four or five? The intro music, was it? Yeah, so I didn't include this because I wasn't sure if people would notice, but we'll talk about it anyway. Um, The intro music is different because it's the intro music that they had in Australia. Right. So when that collection was gathered, uh, they had for some reason that version instead. Right. It, I don't think it ever happens again. Could it be because this... I fast forwarded through it? So <laughs> could it be because maybe this was was this was one any of these episodes missing at one point? I don't know. Um, I don't know if it was missing, but they definitely they clearly pulled a version of it yeah. that had uh, been an export version rather than the or than, than the normal it, version. Maybe they only had it in black and white and Australia yeah. had the colour version. Yeah. I imagine it's something like that, yeah. Like I didn't actually hear it because you I skipped through. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's go on to our cast. So yeah. as the presence of it's not quite like it's not like quite it's not quite like the X Men team tune, which you just cannot skip no matter how many times you watch well, like, it. when you're watching six episodes in a row. <laughs> yeah. Around episode four, you're just like, fuck it, just fast yeah. forward. <laughs> So, cast. Yes. As the president of Earth, otherwise known as Dora, we have Vera Fusick, I want to say. F-U-S-E-K. Provo yeah. Fusick. Yeah. Uh, this is her only Doctor Who acting credit. Her non-Who credits include The Adventurer, Mogul, The Shermans, Inheritance, and The Four Just Men. She passed away last year in August of 2021. Huh. General Williams is played by Michael Hawkins. Again, his only Doctor Who acting credit. His non-Who credits include The Hand of the Baskervilles, The Avengers, Emergency Ward 10, The Brothers, and I, Claudius. Michael passed away in 2014. As the Draconian Prince, we have Peter Burrell. His, again, only Doctor Who acting credit. His non-Who credits include The Jump, 
London's Burning, Sharp, specifically Sharp's company, where he was Don Marino, which I think is Teresa's dad. Teresa's uncle. Uncle, Uncle. yeah. Yeah. Melba, Angels, Alexander the Greatest, and Honey Lane. Peter passed away in 2004. I was nearly going to call him a bastard because I thought he shot Harry Price, but then I realised, oh wait, no, he shot the soldier after Harry Price. (laughs) 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 Lastly, in his final appearance, we have the master played by Roger Delgado. This is Roger's final appearance as the master in June of 1973. Roger died tragically in a car accident. Um, when he was in Turkey, he was working on a production and his chauffeur drove off a cliff. And it's like, it's one of those things that I, I the very first instance I ever heard of this, right, was I watched, uh, the uh, Gladiator, the Russell Crowe film, mm-hmm. and Oliver Oliver Reed died while they were making that, so like they had to use like alternate footage and body doubles mm-hmm. and all this type of stuff. But they were able to get like at least the full movie out of it, out of what they had. Mm-hmm. Where and like so every so often, like you know, when you see like more movies where actors had died on set, like The Crow with Bra- uh, yeah. Brandon Lee, there was always the whole thing was done so much so like that. Oh, it's like, oh yeah, that's like a, a body shot or that's an extra shot or that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Here though, it actually kind of, it upsets me a bit because of the fact of how rushed the whole thing is because obviously maybe there was more shots to be done or whatever because he literally just shoots the doctor and it's flash and he's gone. You don't even see him run away. Well, like that wasn't because of it being, that wasn't because of Roger passing away. Because um, right. obviously, I mean, this aired in March of 1973 and he passed away in June that was likely because he wasn't really available for the pickups maybe that they were doing for Mm. the following episode what's really devastating though is that he was meant to have one more story what would likely have been the final story of the next season which would have been John's final story which ends up being Planet of the Spiders Mm. um, was meant to be uh, a story which wasn't scripted yet it was just a brief outline it was called The Final Game and you know, the master would have died, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah. the doctor would have ge- regenerated. And I don't know if they confirmed whether the master would have regenerated or not, but it, it was their way of sort of closing off that arc between the doctor and the master. Um, again, final game has very sort of, I think, Shut Holmes and Moriarty yeah. vibes to it. Um, and unfortunately, you didn't get that. So Roger's last story, and we'll get to it when we're discussing the character, but it's kind of sad because like you said it clearly wasn't the end they had planned for him and like you actually saying that now because that's the first I've ever heard of that to be honest with you right mm. about a planned story and because like obviously he makes appearance again during the Tom Baker era yeah. albeit in a much different form and had they done had they been able to do the final game mm. It would like the appearance of the master there wouldn't be so jarring. It would be like an awesome surprise, but it wouldn't be so jarring yeah. as to like how we got from that from tier to that. If we had had that story, we'd kind of go, all right, you know, that seems a bit more uh, kind of like continuity or whatever you want to call it. But like again, it's just unfortunate that not to be. Yeah, and like you know, th- there's a couple of stories that sort of go around. I mean, one thing that's very clear is that the John Pertwee unit crew 
Mm-hmm. You know, so John, Casey, Nicholas, um, Richard Franklin, and John Levine. Mm-hmm. Um, they all were very close to Roger. They were a very tight knit group. Um, and they were all devastated, understandably, when when Roger passed away. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have said that the reason Casey left was because of Roger, and that that isn't true. No. Um, that would have been planned already, and even John himself, I think they kind of they kind of knew that like the next season may be his last. The, the way he describes it, he wanted more money, and they basically said no. Yeah. Um, but that Roger passing didn't really help. No. Do you know that? It wasn't the same experience without Roger there. Mm-hmm. And not even without Roger there, because he wasn't in all the stories, but knowing what happened to him. So we've gone on for quite a bit on this, but <laughs> yeah. it is his last story. And, you know, we won't be doing a, a rambling for him because we don't do ramblings for villains, as it were. But, yeah. R.I.P. Roger Delgado. Mm. And I've actually just realized that of the main cast that we're going to be discussing, the only cast member still alive is Katie. John? Levine? Isn't in this story. Oh, sorry, in this one. This one yeah. Sorry. I, I, I touched one of the unit <laughs> no, crew. And John, like, John and Richard are still there. <laughs> yeah, because like, I had this argument with someone before like, that John Levine like, was definitely not dead. <laughs> no, no. John yeah. Levine is fine. Oh uh, yeah, of this of this one, yeah. In He's this said, story, all yeah. the characters are going to be discussing. The only the only one uh, still with us is Katie, which is um, quite sad. Mm-hmm. That's a real bummer note. Well, okay. To, I suppose we bring things back up again. Yeah, go on. Uh, I was saying John Levine celebration. I can't remember what number birthday he had, but over Christmas he had his birthday. So uh, happy birthday, John! Congratulations. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Another random piece of trivia that I didn't put in. Yeah. Um, the boots that. Joe wears after she gets her like black bathrobe type thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Katie, mind designing those boots? That's pretty cool. She can't wear flats because John's too tall. So apparently, she designed those boots. Cool. So we have done our summary. Thank you. We have done trivia. Thank me. And now we're on to our character discussion. So we have the Doctor. We have... I don't know how you set these up, right? So I did Companion Joe on her own. And then I did prominent characters of the Present of Earth, General Williams, and the Draconian Prince. I just left the Master as the villain. Yeah, that's how I have it as well. Okay. Because for once, I didn't actually check with you before <laughs> before I put mine in. So, Paddy, the Doctor, mm-hmm. thoughts? Really doesn't like Ogrons, does he? No. No, he does no. not. No, because as to, to my memory, they are the only race that he would actually pick up a gun and shoot. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is the thing. Like People who say the Doctor never uses guns, he does. Mm-hmm. Mainly against Ogrons. But like... Yeah. We have seen previously, like, um, even like in the Dalek invasion of Earth, like Hartnell wasn't opposed to them being used; just wasn't the biggest fan mm-hmm. of them. There's a time and a place. Yeah, definitely. You know? And, and Ogrons, <laughs> and anytime Ogrons are present, is that time and place. <laughs> the doctor going, the Doctor going to the Ogron home planet is like a red ragged bull. Um. But seriously though, I thought this was a very good showing from the Doctor here. 
Um, mm. I like seeing him play the part of the peacemaker. You know, me too. Um, like trying to avoid war at all costs. It's really good. Uh, one thing that I do quite like is we've often seen the Doctor use his, I suppose you could say, his superior intelligence to kind of maybe browbeat people into listening to him, mm. which not a huge fan of but what i do like is when he uses like the local venerations for like the authority mm. figures like so you know when he walked into the emperor's throne room and he gave like the formal greeting that a noble would give to the emperor like i thought that was that was classy mm. and like again like, it kind of reminds you of his interactions with the king of atlantis in the yeah. time monster uh so i really enjoyed that i also like the fact that like, you know he's willing to risk himself for people that want him dead you know because like he's willing to like you know put everything on the line to avoid a a war between two races that clearly don't have any time for him yeah again like and also just like risking himself you know like going outside to repair the ship because like i'm pretty sure he could quite easily pilot that ship but he didn't want the pilot to risk his life he said he'd go out and do it instead so Mm. thought that thought that was pretty cool um and also i know you do like a checklist but will a notebook suffice <laughs> it works yeah because like, he's there at the start going i just need to get the readings from the crew and he's just there with like a notepad and a pen <laughs> it kind of reminds me again of heart noodles like yeah having like jotting down his little notes and, mm-hmm. and and trying to figure things out yeah i agree with everything you said i think the doctor is very compassionate mm-hmm. in this story and i love the way he is with joe Yes. Um, again, you know, I I have been critical of their relationship in the past, but I think in recent stories it's kind of grown from strength to strength to strength. And like me being critical of it in the past doesn't mean that I'm not critical now. Mm-hmm. It's because it shows there's been development. Yeah, well, like those criticisms are still valid for for those stories. Yeah. But like, you know, what is great is that we see the character dynamic develop over time. Mm-hmm. Um, like even when like when they're when he's telling her about the mind probe and he's sort of joking with her about like oh well I said that I was going to meet an elephant and a pink whatever and yeah just putting her at ease and keeping her calm and stuff like that which I think is great. Mm-hmm. We didn't have too much of quote unquote science doctor here, um, but we had a lot of intelligent doctor. Yeah, but there, there wasn't a whole lot of like you know spoons and whatever to make. No. you know dampeners or whatever but there's a lot of intelligence on this like you mentioned like the way he interacts with the draconian noble like with the emperor as if he was a draconian noble his knowledge of the way things work like losing using the little filament thing to cut through the bars and, and stuff like which, that which is why like i like to consider carnival frontier and the next story to be like a, a trilogy because mm. he used the same uh, filament to cut through the hatchways that on that got them into the yeah. Jurassic World and stuff like that. Yeah, so I think that's great. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, like we said, like you know, the Doctor never uses guns. That isn't true, or the Doctor never uses violence. That also isn't true. True, no. But there is a time and a place he yeah. does when he has to. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I do love the fact that like he. Like the fact that he immediately sussed that the guy on the moon was like, "Well, so when are you planning to escape?" No, no, no I, I know you are. Like, but yeah, but when <laughs> is it soon? Can I come? <laughs> <laughs> Please. 
It's like no, 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 don't, don't like you. You've said nothing. No one else suspects, but like I know you're doing it. So like, can I come with you? <laughs> also, one of my favorite bits, and I wish they'd kind of done it a bit better and a bit, been a bit more true to how it would be, and a bit also a bit more like the way we see it done nowadays. I loved his Wally moment, where like you know the master like moved the ship. And the doctor like let go of the of the railings, and so he was kind oh, of floating. Yeah. And he detached his oxygen oh, to do yeah. like the Wally like yeah. uh, fire extinguisher space flight thing. <laughs> um, I thought that was cool. Um, I think they it, obviously it could have been done a bit better shot wise, but you mm. you still got the same impression, um, yeah. which I think. Is, and that's probably why he went outside the ship as well, is because in case the ship had to make a, a drastic yeah. movement, he kind of knew that he could survive longer than. Um, than the pilot. But. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well done, that man. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. So that brings us on to Joe. It does. Um, an interesting thing I've noticed about Joe, right, is people always go on about how Sarah Jane mm-hmm. is the women's lib companion. Like she was brought in as the sort of women's lib. There's nothing only about being a girl, you know, very much, you know, women's lib is a thing. Thank you very much. Mm. And I think a lot of people probably associate most closely with that character. Yeah. Even though, I mean, Liz Shaw certainly had her fair bit of it, mm-hmm. though she never used the words women's lib, to, to be honest. I think Joe has now used women's lib more times than Sarah Jane ever does. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> because I actually. What the, yeah, she says that to the draconian guard, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> but this isn't the first time she's said it either. She no. has mentioned it in other stories as well. It's interesting that most people associate it with Sarah Jane and consider Joe to be more of the, you know, typical sidekick female and, mm. you know, not as um, equal or not as wanting to be equal or whatever. But I find it really interesting that I think she actually goes on about it more than Sarah does. <laughs> I, I had an image came into my head there just now. Do you remember you sent me a kind of like a compilation video of major crimes? Mm. And like at one point, who's the coroner again? What's his name? Oh, yeah. He's Hugh from yeah, Star Trek. Hugh. Yeah. But he says, uh, was it good morning, angels? Yeah. I can imagine a very similar thing here with Polly joe and sarah jane yeah you think that like liz will be off on the side being like i'll be bosley thanks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i can see that too do you know yeah. well but it was just an interesting an interesting observation i had joe is great mm. she continues to go from strength to strength to the sad point that her strength of being able to get out of any prison she finds herself in is used against her I actually have a note about that in my comments about the master, but like, I actually liked that. I mm. like that he has enough respect for her yeah. to realize he can use her intelligence against her. Yeah, I, I thought that was great. I love. I actually loved the fact that the master couldn't use his hypnotic suggestion on her, that, that and the fact great. that she clearly was like, "Okay, the last time." A, it's a lovely throwback to when they first met, which would be yeah. in both of their first stories. 
Um, but again, it's showing that development and how much she has grown that she's like, no, I looked into it. Yeah, because you and know, to what, avoid what... it, you just have to keep your mind focused on fucking other shit. So I know plenty of nursery rhymes. <laughs> Once was enough. Thank you very much. And like, I, yeah. I love the fact that the master's like, I hate nursery rhymes. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that again with the hypno sound, even though she is seeing a drashig, she's seeing a sea devil, she's seeing the other thing I've forgotten. Oh, Seronian um, mutant. Yeah, she is also still being like, no, 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 fuck you. <laughs> your hypnotism isn't going to work on me anymore and you can tell that at the end he's kind of like oh, fair fucks to you yeah let's send joe to the mind robber planet and see how she gets on there <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but all that is feeding the fact that i actually really liked her interactions with the master in the story hmm. actually kind of more than i liked the doctor and the master's interactions i think Katie and Roger have sort of built gradually over time this amazing dynamic between the master and Joe. Because mm. like the master and the doctor, it's like they're compatriots, they're peers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas from the master's perspective, Joe is like a bug beneath his shoe. Mm. Humans are so far beneath him and yet they have this very interesting dynamic between them. We saw it in um your know, previous stories where he was like, you know, or in the Time Monster he's like, you know, I'm sorry, but you're bottom as well. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> like stuff like this. And I'm actually again I'm kinda of disappointed that we're not gonna see more of them together because I actually thought that the two of them worked almost as well, if not sometimes better, than the Master and the Doctor did. Well, see, that's a point there I have about Joel in the sense of this is a, this is a great example of a companion being able to carry the story and progress the story by themselves. Yeah. But also, it's a good example of where the companion story, to me, is more interesting than what the Doctor is doing. Oh, yeah. He's just going back and forth. Yeah. Because, like, uh, they, I, again, like kind of comments about that in the overall. But I was just like, Joel is doing great here. I want to know more about you know what mm. Joel is doing. Uh, so please can we go back to Joe I also love how she had a bowl and a spoon Yeah, and I was like I will dig with the spoon it's like the ground is fairly soft you could probably use the bowl yeah. but like she basically fucking Shawshanks her way out of that place <laughs> it's, it's amazing <laughs> I was like you know, she starts digging with the spoon I'm like okay you could have used your hands yeah. and then you could have used the bowl the spoon should really only be needed for the tough sections yeah <laughs> Although, to be fair, like, that's like something I would do, kind of go like, fuck it, I'll use the spoon. Like, and at which point, if, yeah, you would come along and kind of say, like, you'd have, you could have used the bowl. They're just like, please, I had enough intelligence to use the spoon in the first place. <laughs> Don't take it away from me. What did you think of the doctor's reaction when she told him, oh, the hypnosound doesn't work on me? Because he kind of looks at her and kind of goes, ah, yeah. that's great. <laughs> I... It's like he's pleasantly surprised. <laughs> That's like you finally finding out that I can understand new math. Ain't gonna happen. Or you solved a Rubik's cube by yourself. <laughs> Possibly might happen, but yeah, no, it's and like had it been earlier in their relationship, he might have made like a slightly condescending remark. Mm. But now it's they've now gotten to like I think they've worked out the majority of the kinks from their relationship, which mm. is good. Uh, but yeah, no, Joe is, this is a definitely, like, Joe's top three for her rambling 
Mm. It's getting fucking tough. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the prominent characters. Indeed we do. So there is the president, General Williams, and the draconian prince. Sound like characters from a fucking board game. (laughs) (laughs) So if we start with Madam President, um, and I'll be honest, for the first, like all of her interactions with the general, I was there going, don't see Rosalind Adama, don't see Rosalind Adama, or kind of like Rosalind Kane with a little Mm. bit of Adama thrown in there for the mix. I actually really liked the present of Earth. I thought she was a very interesting character. Mm. You can kind of tell throughout the story that, you know, it's not this... While it is a, like a vaulted position, mm-hmm. it's not like really sometimes we see in particularly futuristic stories you have the president or the leader of a planet. Yeah. And it's almost as if, well, no, we all voted for this one person and whatever, but here like there is an opposition party. Yeah. There's also this peace party, which are not the opposition party, but they're they're, they're another, uh, party. another group. Yeah, and you can tell that she's balancing that while trying to still, you know, be very much a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't throw the prince out of her office when he keeps saying you're lying. She's like, no, yeah. like keeps trying to work that diplomatic line the whole time. And we can obviously see through the news footage mm-hmm. that that's not exactly a popular choice. No. Do you know, people would prefer if she was more decisive and more like General Williams. And I think it's great that she actually holds on for as long as she does. Do you know? And I actually, like I joked about it, but I think it's kind of funny in some respects that like her job is so stressful that they actually had to show her getting a massage. <laughs> <laughs> do you know? Do you know who she kind of reminds me of? Like, you know, again, probably very loose connection mm-hmm. here. Uh, the vice president in Air Force One. Yeah. Yeah, because like you know, you've got the um, the Dean Stockwell's character. I can't remember what position he is, but like mm-hmm. he's going around gathering up all the support so that she can sign the thing that'll give the injunction where the vice president takes over. And like you know, forcing her to sign it, and like saying, "If you don't do it, well, like I can get a majority vote and all this type of stuff." And she refuses. No, the scale is a bit different. Yeah, but I think the message is entirely still the same, which is to try and hold out for as long as possible before you have to take make that drastic call. And actually, now that you mention it, I think you know I was trying, like I said, I was trying to either not see Rosalind Adama and those two characters. Or try and see how they would be like. It kind of varied from scene to scene, whether I saw it or not. But I think the example you just gave there of the vice president and him. Yeah. Forgotten his title. I think it's probably, is, it, is he the Secretary of State? I'll, I'll check. Go on, yeah. Anyway. anyway, I think the relationship between General Williams and the president is actually them. Do you know? Yeah. Um, where she's trying to do the right thing, she's trying to follow the rules, she's trying to stay diplomatic or whatever, and he's just like, "No, fuck them, blow them out of the sky." You know, it's very similar. But you ha- also have that moment where Williams is like, "I'm your friend." Yeah, I actually really like that part. I did. Mm. Uh, he's a defense secretary, so defense actually, secretary. It, it's, yeah. it actually makes more of a sort of. Yeah, a, but <laughs> I, I think because like, again, you get the feeling that like the defense secretary in Air Force One he wasn't trying to undermine her. He was no. like, this situation requires, like, that falls to me because it's this. 
it's not that he thinks she can't do her job it's just that he doesn't think this particular instance is her job no and like again there's i suppose like there's the symbolism of the message of the sense of like you know earth is a star is a it's like a fledgling empire so they have to show like that they're not going to hmm be cut you know they're not going to like back off at you know the first sign of an obstacle much like you know the u.s they don't tolerate terrorism or terrorist attacks irregardless of what the, the you know the potential damage like you're know, getting rid of the president that type of thing yeah so, and if you look at it again from the other side like from a sort of british colonial perspective yeah you have the whole thing with Sirius four and the fact that it's not a colony anymore it's yeah you know it's a dominion and it you know she can't tell them what to do yeah, and it brings up like stuff that you know potentially like at one point there was like your know, Churchill had potentially thought about invading Ireland again, despite the fact that at that stage we had Dominion status. Yeah, because he wanted yeah. his fucking ports back. Yeah, um. <laughs> but yeah, but like it was like there, there's again like I've often made this point, you know, where good sci-fi can draw metaphors from ha- what's happening in the world at that moment, mm. and it does it here wonderfully, I think. Mm. What I would have liked to have seen though is. Because she is very strong in herself and she does stick to her own guns. And like even when she was saying, like, okay, I'll cut off, you know, political discourse or whatever, but I'm not fucking attacking them. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll, I'll cut off diplomatic relations, but we're not attacking until you have evidence, because fuck that. I would have actually liked to see her go into the mind program and actually conduct the interview herself. Mm. Because, and we'll get to it in a second, General Williams is clearly biased. Yeah, and she's relying on him too much for information, even when she knows he's biased. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And I think, you know, she even had Joe offering to go under the mind probe. Yeah, and you're like, well, why did you take Joe up on her offer? So, do you know? But the president oversee it so that she doesn't get hurt. And um, that's something I would I would just like to have seen from that character hmm. is. To see her outside of that room. Yeah, I think that'd be kind of cool. Also, I because I'm just on the Wikipedia page for it, for Air Force One for the uh, Vice President's character. It says, through all the tension, she remains calm, refusing to make risky or poor decisions. So, <laughs> again, very apt, I think. Yep. So and not about... sweating through her blouse. No, not sweating through her blouse. So how about now we go on to the Dean Stockwell of this story? Oh, Williams, you are an ass. Do you know who he kind of reminds me of? Who? Cisco. Oh, wow. Okay, I want to hear this. How? So, what was his name? Um, fuck it, the guy that kept calling him Javert. Oh, the Maquis guy. Yeah. Yeah, I've forgotten his name, but I know who you mean. Yeah, so like, I'm reminded of the fact that, like, Williams is so... He like he's blinded by his hatred for Draconia. That hmm. like you know he's kind of blind to his own misdeeds, much like Cisco. Like you know he was so fucking adamant over the fact that you betrayed the uniform. He was so I will to... poison a planet that has people living on it. He was willing to do terrible things just to fucking get that slight. So like that that's kind of came to my head, hmm. and like I there's like. I'm pretty sure like there's more Star like Star Trek kind of similarities between the fact that you know he accidentally, it was an accident, but in hindsight it's an accident. He accidentally destroyed the Draconian ship because he thought that they were well, aggressive. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the what you know the original timeline introduction of the Ferengi, 
mm, you know, the battle yeah. with Picard. Yeah. Which was, you know, it wasn't an outright, you know, war thing. They didn't know who the other person was or whatever. Yeah. Or like another kind of, you made a Battlestar Galactica reference there. Uh, in the pilot, the Olympic carrier, the one that they couldn't raise on message and they were trying yeah. to figure out whether the ship blow up or not. Um, Christ, like this story is just riddled with fucking analogies to utter. It is. And like you mentioned like Cisco and stuff. And I think, you know, if we do go back to the Battlestar thing with Adama, I mean, there is a certain level of Adama, like Commander Adama from the miniseries. Yeah. About Williams. Mm-hmm. Do you know? We must attack them. They attacked us first. Blah blah blah. There's also like a certain bit of cane in there. It's in this this dogged focus on they're the enemy. It doesn't matter that we had a treaty with them. For, that does that's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. They're attacking us now, and we have to attack them back. And he's one of those guys where like he's so fixed on his own opinion mm-hmm. that even though the his own mind probe is telling him, yeah. This man is telling the truth. He won't believe it. No. And it's like, what else do you need? He's like, oh no, they've just been so ingrained. It's been so ingrained in them that like they believe they're telling the truth. Yeah. And you know, oh, like this conditioning is like so. And like you know, when he can't break the conditioning and he can't get them to admit the truth once, he just ships them off to the fucking moon. Yeah. You know, like it's it's very much this sort of like. I think these guys are evil and nothing you tell me is going to change my mind. And thankfully his mind does change. It it does. And I do like the fact that he's like, I, we only got a small taste of it, but I would have liked to have seen the, of more of his interactions with the Prince after the fact, because yeah. he seems to have made enough of an apology that it seemed to, it, it the prince, because we've seen the whole thing like that the draconians are very imperial in the way like they are the way that they would demand respect and they don't suffer fools lightly or anything mm. like that. And they like every, everything has to be of an appropriate level, every gesture, every statement, every apology. Mm. Whatever apology he made, the prince, who was just as antagonistic as as Williams at the start of small bit, has accepted it. Yeah. So I would love to have seen more of their interactions as the story went on. Yeah, and I mean, if if we jump ship over now to talk about the prince, um, yeah. just to speak about the prince towards the end, mm-hmm. um, I did love when the actual draconian ship, yeah, not a hypno sound draconian ship, but an actual draconian ship, was attacking them. Yeah, the prince was like, "Let me talk to them." Yeah. I'll convince them. And when William's like, they won't believe you, he's like, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Like, and you can tell that there's a genuine embarrassment there and a genuine remorse there, which is great when you compare him to what he was like at the beginning. Do what I actually, do what I think is even better than that mm. is before just as they leave and they're saying like you know goodbye to the president he goes my life at your command which yeah. is the um, the thing that they he says to the emperor, the emperor which yeah. is the thing that the doctor says to the emperor mm. so like that to me i thought was a fantastic character moment yeah but when you have the fact that williams is being such a dick to him yeah 
Yeah. And they have that sort of thing where he's like, fuck. Like, I'm I'm sorry, dude. Like, yeah. shit. And it's such a contrast to who we saw at the beginning because uh, at the beginning he was such a child. Yeah, there's a huge element of like kids in the play going, going, nah, yeah, huh, between the two of them. Yeah, like Williams at least presents himself with more of a military bearing. Yeah. Whereas the prince comes across very much like, you know, I'm with Starfleet and we don't lie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm God. a draconian and yeah. we don't lie. However, you're saying the exact same story I am, so you're clearly lying. Like, you just called me a liar and so I make it up. And no, no, no. You're like, it's this childish back and forth. And like, both sides are guilty of it that neither of them even consider the fact that they could both be wrong. Yeah, and like it's this, I think because again of the, the Eastern style mm. that, or the Eastern aesthetic that the Draconians have you almost had this like kind of weird like isolationist view like when Japan got opened up to the world again after mm. like blocking foreigners off for so long it's like this whole thing of like their their society is so honor bound and so rigid with their candor that they have a very isolationist view of the whole galaxy in the sense that, that everyone else has the capacity to and the willingness to lie as mm. well whereas Draconians know we don't lie it's it's against our our livelihood or our credence or anything like that yeah so it's like You'd be kind of going, just you can't see it. You like you really legitimately can't see it. Yeah, I think yeah. that is hard though. I think he is a good guy. Oh, I think he's just so caught up in, and potentially even. I mean, I don't know. I got this sense. I don't know if all that. Like his position as um, a like ambassador. Yeah. You know, I kind of get the sense. That was a lot of nepotism, and maybe he actually wasn't ready for it. Hugely, because his guy, his aide seems to have like his aide seems to be the one that's kind of guiding him towards their own things, you know, trying to make him see sense in in that regards. Yeah, you kind of get the sense that like I said, I think he's a good guy at heart, but I think he was too young or too young at mind to mm. be in the position that he was. Yeah. No, I'd agree. But I also agree with this in the thing as well where you're saying he's a good person at heart because like like William is kind of saying like, I'm not going to be the one that would overthrow you. I'm just warning you. Yeah. He does the same to his dad. Like and he he stands to gain from his dad being deposed. Yeah. It's like I I could be made emperor and like again at going with that aesthetic, like you know, there's an awful lot of fucking sons of emperors that want to jump the line, you know? Uh or even like if you go back to your know, Roman the Roman mm. emperors, things like that. Um but no, he's like, you have to act, otherwise they will overthrow you. They will take you off the throne. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think they're great mirrors of each other. And I like the, their cooperation at the end. Yeah. like the, the scene of the two of them with their backs to the door and like their yeah. eyes closed and their hands yeah. over their ears is just so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I would like, if, if Dash was a transcendence of Ephros, that mm. story... If if that's a continuation of the frontier story, I have to listen to it because I I love when Doctor Who gives us you know just like side characters or supporting characters that I want to listen to more, I want to know more about. Yeah. Shall we talk about the man himself? Yes. So, 
probably the best we've seen of the master to date. Yeah, I, I have it in here. Here we finally have a master story where the master isn't duped by his allies. No. Or he's not trying to summon some supreme powerful force that is just going to stab him in the back. Because, um, yeah, he's working with the Daleks, but like the Daleks are kind of more on his level. Yeah. In comparison to Kronos or in comparison to Azal. Like, there is a a slight shade of a similarity between, you know, the way the Doctor helped the Daleks and evil of the Daleks, but with the the plan of overthrowing them or Mm. at least getting rid of them. The Master is the same here. Like, oh yeah, I'll, you know, let guide you guys to war and then once that's done I'll knock the shit out of you as well <laughs> um, or is he like what was it tin plated idiots or whatever he called them um, like I think we covered a lot when we talked about his relationship with Joe in the, in the sense of um, what I had to say about him anyway because like he he uses her intelligence against her like he doesn't treat her like a, a dumb human hmm while like it's not like out and out kind of like you said or anything like that like there is this begrud- begrudging respect that he has for her i suppose like this weird f- perverse fondness he mm. has for her in the sense of like you know oh, my favorite antagonist and my favorite antagonist's sidekick or whatever it may be like ro- like roger is like the one thing that he has done about his master is he's made him very charismatic and he's made because like you know he's the delegate from serious four like you know he's in I love that bit where you know he's trying to like call the doctor a liar and all this type of stuff. Then he realizes that the Earth ship, which is docked, is actually the Orgon ship, and he's like, "You know, Your Majesty, I must commend you on your pursuit of peace." And basically, fa fa fa, you're amazing, you're amazing. Come on, would you hurry the fuck up and rescue me, shit? Um, I do wonder, like, when the doctor's like, "Are you all right?" Like, yeah, he goes, like, "Are you feeling all right, my old man, old chap?" I do wonder was that John ad libbing? Mm. Because, like, the look between the Doctor and Joe, I'm like, what the fuck is the animal? <laughs> also, like, the the level of assholishness to be the be the one behind trying to create a, a war between worlds and then sit back and read War of the Worlds while you're doing it. Oh, that is some, that is some fucking douchebaggery right there. It's very good, though. Oh. I, I love, like, and to anyone that hasn't read it, War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, fantastic book. Also, Jeff Wynn's War of the Worlds is a fantastic album. Do you know what's and, really weird? Well, For the last few days, so I went back to work the other day, mm-hmm. and I've just been listening to Eve of War Even and Thunderchild, <sighs> like, on repeat, and then last night I sat down to watch this, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, it is, it is one of my biggest annoyances that I would love to have seen that show, but mm. because there's so much laser imagery in it, my photo sensitivity would have really fucking. Annoyed yeah, me. you would have had to wear your your, yeah. your glasses, and you probably wouldn't be able to see that much. Yeah, so like I, I would have hated that. But yeah, uh, book is amazing. Jeff Wayne, Jeff Wayne's uh, album of it is fantastic, and so is Orson Welles' radio broadcast that scared the shit out of a section of New York <laughs> in the thirties. Um, but yeah, back to this, like, but that level of douchebaggery is fantastic mm. because I knew that this was the last one that he was in. I sort of did like a mini rambling in my head. Mm. And it's like, okay, you pair him up against all the other masters. Like you've got like Anthony, 
obviously there's the guys that were there for the one-offs. Yeah. But then like the longer run ones, like you know, you have Anthony Ainley and then Grant you Eric Robertson the movie, and then you have John Sim and Michelle Gomez, Sasha Dewan, even Derek Jacoby is getting a run mm. of it on the big finish stuff. And also now Eric Roberts. Mm. Until I actually listen to that stuff, Roger still is the he's the one that sets the bar for me. Yeah, I mean, I've seen probably the most of John Sim. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen all of Sasha Dewan, but he hasn't had yeah. as much to do. No, he, he hasn't. I do like Sasha's version, um, but it very much taps into the I'm slightly fucking mental side that, that John Sim had. Sasha Dewan's version is like a dark Troughton. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do think, and to be honest, it's mainly through... How do you judge a good master? By how yeah. he, he slash she interacts with the companion. Yeah. Because the master and the doctor are always going to have a great relationship. That's always going to be really interesting yeah. to watch. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, the re- dynamic between Roger and Casey is mm. so good. And I haven't seen much of... Um, Anthony Ainley. Anthony Ainley. I've only seen, I think, one story with him in it. So I can't really comment there. John Sim had a great back and forth with David Tennant, mm. but I don't think he actually had a great relationship with any of the other characters. No, because he doesn't really interact with them. Yeah, more. see, we don't get to see that develop. And, you know, Sasha Dewan, again, kind of has a little bit with Yaz, if I remember correctly. Um, it's a bit teeny weeny, I think. I think if you're to go with the modern equivalent, you're going to look at Michelle Gomez. Yeah, I was going to say like the, the other big person that I've seen that sort of has actual conversations with the companion that aren't "muhaha, I'm an evil bastard" is Michelle Gomez with Clara. Yeah. Um, and Bill to an extent, but mostly with Clara. Yeah. Um, but I still think, in terms of that dynamic, I think Roger. Roger and Katie together is the best. Because like, you have this thing of where sometimes you actually get the feeling that the master is like, okay, you know, save Miss Grant. Mm-hmm. Do you know, don't kill her. She's yeah. fine. And other times he's like, no, I'm going to leave her fucking trapped in the void all on her own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's this thing of like, he's not a trustworthy person, but like, if she's done nothing wrong and he can keep her safe for a little while. Yeah. He will. Like, he's the Christopher Lee of Bastards. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. But. Oh, yeah. And that's the. Like, we have ragged on his master quite a bit because of mm. how he, you know, for being the smart, one of the smartest people in the universe, he's quite thick at times, you know? Yeah. But it's his charisma, it's his interaction with the Doctor, Joe, the Brigadier, Benton. Mm. It's. And. I like how, yes, the shtick is the same in the sense of I'm going to use this higher power that I think I can control and blah, 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 whatever. It's the new setup that he does it. I mean, like, like going from setting up a fucking satanic cult <laughs> in like in an English countryside village to, to becoming a fake doctor of fucking physics, uh, astrophysics <laughs> at City of a Research Institute. <laughs> you gotta admire his fucking, like, you know. You know, you can't say he didn't try. 
No, he did. You know. <laughs> he really didn't. Um, and what I like in this one is, like I said, it isn't just him being like, "I'm going to summon this great power and blah blah blah,", blah and I, oh shit, I can't control it. It's very much so. Oh no, no, I allied with them. I'm going to stir the pot. They're going to come in. They're going to run Ramshot. They're going to give me control over Earth. And then I'm going to turn around and stab them in the back. You know, rather than it being, well, they're going to come in and give me power and I will have all power everlasting, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, no, no. Like, he's aware that he's the middleman. Do you know? You can edit this, you can edit this out if you want, but did I make Loki Roger Delgado in your fucking story? Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, that you, now that you question it that way. Yeah, yeah, you did. Cool, perfect. I'm happy with yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Like he, like the master that we see here is, it's the master. It's stirring the shit. Yeah. Do you know, it's playing everybody off everybody else, mm. as opposed to him just trying to garner power for himself. This is actually very. Even though I didn't like it, personally, this is very similar to Colony in Space. Yeah. Where. Again, he came in as this respectable, you know, character and played along and actually had a trial and did the whole thing. Um, I didn't like how that story ended up, but I think mm. the master there and the master here are probably the two that I like the most. <laughs> yeah, no, like that's and, and that's something like you know. Again, as we've said, you can like an element of a story while not liking the story mm. itself. Whereas here, though, well, I guess we'll get into that in a minute. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> But un- unbeknownst to him, it was his swan song, and I think that he did a great job here. Yeah, and I am gutted that we actually don't get to see any more of his stuff. No, I re- I'm the same. Thank you very much, Mr. Delgado. So. Uh, now that we have gone through the characters, we're going to give it a, the story, that is, a score out of five. So, taking all the elements that we've discussed, Trish, do you want to go first, or will I go first? Uh, I'll go first. Cool. Um, I actually really like this story. Um, mm. I thought it was really good. The acting was good, supporting characters were very good. The model work, we didn't mention that, because uh, it didn't go up in character discussion, but the model work on this mm. was very good. It was. Um, the only like negative from a production standpoint is the blob monster, <laughs> which thankfully like they caught it in the edit and they reduced its presence as much as they possibly could. It looked like someone trying to erect a bouncing castle from the inside. Yeah, or I'm not going to go with what my aura was because it's disgusting. Never mind. So I really liked it. I actually quite like the fact that it's like this political drama hmm. rather than a big action set piece. There are action yeah. moments in it, but it's not a big action story. Um, and while it has mystery in it, the the mystery isn't really the driving force. It's the mm. political components in it, and this mystery is happening around yeah. it, which I find quite interesting. In terms of a score, I gave it a four. Mm-hmm. On rewatches, it may go up. I don't quite know. There was nothing massive about it that I hated. 
it just didn't feel like a five to me. And yeah. part of that may be because it leads directly into next week. I think if next week goes well, this could probably get higher points as a good lead into next week. But if next week doesn't go well, this is kind of like, oh, all this build up for nothing. So I think from from my scoring, like I couldn't give this one a five on its own. I didn't feel it merited it. Personally speaking, I don't know what you're giving it. Um, but I think it definitely deserves a four from me. How about you? Well, as you and a lot of our listeners will know, I do like me some good political sci-fi intrigue. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Pushing two empires with a bad history against each other and then lighting the fuse is fucking brilliant when it's done right. Mm. And it was done right here. I I will say that much. Performances were fantastic from supporting cast and main cast, but the definite the two best performances were Katie and Roger. Mm. Hands, Hands down. If we did, if we if we had done ramblings for the the master, this would definitely be in his top. Mm. And once we come around to Katie's one, I'm pretty sure that this is edged out a few of the ones that I had in place. Katie's already. is getting really hurt. She's get, oh, it's getting fucking ridiculous. Like this is approaching Barbara level of yeah. fucking difficulty. Like you know, which hands up, I hadn't anticipated. Oh yeah, of course. Neither had I. I was thinking maybe like fucking Peladon. And no, before we started this. I was thinking possibly Peladon and maybe her last story. Mm. Now we've got, for me, we have uh, Mind of Evil. We have Colony in Space. We have Peladon. I think, did we say Sea, sea Devils? Devils yeah. Like, fuck it. There's a lot. Like, you know. Mm. Um, but they're the two best for this one. Uh, their chemistry is so good. Uh, John was great. And I like that this is, I like that this is the type of story that I, I think I prefer my Doctor in this type of thing, in this mm. scenario. As, as much as it's funny watching John do his best James Bond impression, I, I do quite like it when the Doctor is having to use all his mental faculties, you know? Yeah. Outside of a base and siege thing. You know? mm. Speaking of base and siege, I read Web of Fear, I finished it, and it can, and the novelization confirms that the Great Intelligence just took over Arnold. Arnold hadn't died, he was just still alive, and he just fucking took him over. Cool. Isn't that what I thought? Did I think that, or did you think that? I I was wondering because I assumed that he was oh, dead. You, you thought he was a reanimated corpse, didn't you? Yeah, that's what yeah. I thought it was. Yeah, and I was so. like, no. <laughs> yeah. So okay, fine. Yeah, you win again. <laughs> Great, you got to be caught in the fucking BG song now. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so now I do have some critiques on it. Mm. Okay, I think. The fact that they knew it was now going to be two separate stories. Mm. I think maybe they should have left the Daleks out of it. Mm. And have them be a nice surprise for the Daleks. Um, I think episode four. I think the whole thing on the Lunar Colony could have been scrapped. Because it, it, it adds nothing. Mm. It, 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 just fe- it just felt like a waste. Like the Master could still have come to Earth. And could have started taking them back towards wherever the, the Ogre Home planet had be intercepted by the Draconians and have that carry on. I didn't think that was necessary. Um, the Blob Monster, like, I, it's just fucking... I think it actually would have been cool if the Drashig had been the fucking big monster. If they actually turned out that the Ogrons were, or the Drashigs were from the Ogron home world. Mm. I think that would have been pretty cool. Um, but as the point we got to the thing. <laughs> yeah. 
so no, I've given it a four because the I th- it's just by virtue of the fact that they split it into two. I think they could have tidied it up a small bit better. Yeah, and, and like it could have been a five parter, a very solid five parter. I think. Yeah, and you know, I I completely agree with you on the Daleks in episode six being kind of it was the wrong time. Like they either they should have been the cliffhanger. Yes. Or it, they should have been left out entirely. Given how bad the blob monster was, though, mm-hmm. I'm kind of glad they reshot it and brought the Daleks in earlier. Yeah. Um, it had to be the Daleks that they saw in the cages and stuff. Just because I. The blob monster was shit. I, but isn't it amazing? Like, that just one story previous, they made absolute nightmare fuel with the Drashings. Mm. And they couldn't come up with something. It. it I don't know what it was meant to be. It kind of looks like it's meant to be some like primordial worm slug type I th- thing. I think it's meant to be like the the Earth Chewers from the the Third Hobbit movie, the Battle of the Five Armies. Yeah, since that I think it's meant to be like one of them. Yeah, and that's not what it looks like. So no, I... I'm glad that they redid it. Yeah. Because I don't want to see... Like, if Barry didn't like it, I don't want to see what it was. Do you know? Yeah. But I I agree, though, that it did mean that the ending was rushed. Yeah, the, end, the ending is rushed. Like, And other than that, like I was really into the story. Like I was like, the, the pacing is fucking brilliant. But like, episode four, it skews it. And... Okay, I get that it's a nice bit of world building in the sense that there is a peace party and political dissidents are sent to this lunar colony where there, it's life imprisonment and all this type mm-hmm. of shit. But it, it just like it adds nothing to the actual overall resolution of this story. No. So I think they could have cut that. They could have had a really solid five parter. Mm. And I think that if they had done that, this probably would have been a five. Mm. But as it is, it's it's just a four at the moment, a very strong four. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, so because you know, it just it, it brought in a lot of stuff I love with comics and science fiction, and we've made analogies like that. It was that it was it was very similar to the last two episodes of the Next Generation, season one of the Next Generation. Yeah, season one of the Next Generation. Um, it was a lot of Battlestar Galactica references. Like this is probably the nerdiest episode we've shot because like I'm here in a Dragon Ball Z t shirt. I think you're wearing Harry Potter garb and we're talking about Doctor Who and we're making references to everything else under the fucking sun. So, um, yeah, no, it's a very solid four part, uh, four or five. Very good. So just for context, because obviously mm-hmm. you and I took a few weeks off, that puts your seasonal average at 3.83 and mine at 4.33. So what are we talking about next week, Paddington? Next week, I suppose we're going to find out what happened to the Doctor. Mm. in the planet of the Daleks. Will the Time Lords come and help? Only time shall tell. Oh. <laughs> See, boo. You, go, you go boo because I actually fucked it up because I kind of was going to say something else and then I flubbed yeah. over my words. But I'm going to leave it in because it's funny that I fucked it up. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> cool. Until next week, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Until next week, guys.